This is series co-host Olivia Paschal. Today I'm excited to bring you a special episode of Working History in partnership with the Institute for Southern Studies. Today's episode is a panel recorded live at the 50th anniversary celebration of Southern Exposure Magazine, held in March at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's Wilson Library. The Institute for Southern Studies and Southern Exposure will be familiar to many listeners as stalwarts of the Southern labor, anti-racist, and economic justice movements. This panel, moderated by longtime public health organizer Chip Hughes, features three of the key figures in the Institute's and Southern Exposure's founding. Sue Thrasher, later a longtime director at the Highlander Center, Leah Wise, who led Southerners for Economic Justice, among many other organizations, and Bob Hall, who spent decades at the Institute before founding Democracy North Carolina. In this panel, titled Why We Did What We Did, you'll hear them talk about the post-movement moment that gave rise to the Institute, the idea behind Southern Exposure, a journal and magazine for movements, and the audacity and the struggles the Institute and the magazine went through in the 1970s and 1980s. As archives editor at the Institute, I've been working on a multi-year project to digitize the Southern Exposure Archive. These journals are gold mines of archives on labor, civil rights, oral history, the women's movement, and the South through the 20th century. You can find a link to the digital archive in the show notes. Many thanks to Emmanuel Gomez-Gonzalez for capturing video and audio of the panel session at the 50th, and to the many people whose work made the event possible. Uh, my name is Benjamin Barber. I'm the Democracy Program Coordinator uh, for the Institute for Southern Studies. Uh, we just want to welcome you to this uh, 50th anniversary of Southern Exposure. Um, you know, we, we just want to thank you all for joining us in this event and diving into this history with us. Uh, you know, there's a quote that I like that I think speaks to this purpose of this event. Uh, it says so much about the history that we are uh, talking about today. It simply says, uh, the struggle of humanity against oppressive power is really the struggle between memory and forgetting. And all of us are here because we recognize that the history of the South is a history of struggle and solidarity. Uh, and that is something we can never forget. Um, so today, uh, we hope to have some powerful discussions uh, about this history and the importance of preserving this history, but not only preserving it, but actually using it to make history. Uh, we are honored to have you all with us, and um, I'm going to pass it to Olivia just to give uh, some additional information on the archives and other logistics. Yeah, no logistics for me this time, I think. <laughs> um, uh, I'm Olivia Pascal. I'm the archives editor for the Institute for Southern Studies and Southern Exposure. Uh, I used to be a journalist uh, for Facing South, um, and I'm also a grad student in history, so this has been just a really wonderful event to hear from you um, all throughout today and to meet many of you um, whose bylines um, I've seen. Magazine has I've been working with it. Um, I just wanted to make a quick plug for those of you who are on Zoom and those of you in person for the new Southern Exposure Digital Archive, um, which is live as of two or three days ago. Um, and so I hope that you all will visit it, make use of it, um, use it for students, set it to classrooms. We really want it to be a resource um, for folks, for researchers, for students, for organizers. The URL for that is facingsouth.org slash southern-exposure. So please check that out. Um, and it looks like all of our panelists are here, so we will hand it on over to Chip. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, first I want to give thanks to my partners that you just heard from. Uh, the three of us sort of came together uh, last summer and started talking about this idea of uh, intergenerational conversation. And um, I feel like, given the audience that we have here in the room and on Zoom, I feel like we've really uh, been successful as organizers. <laughs> In uh, 
bring together a really great group of people, uh, both um, veterans and newbies, uh, and aspirational. Uh, and, and, and thanks to all of you guys for, for doing that. Within the proud history of Southern Exposure Magazine and the Institute for Southern Studies is a great appreciation for the power of social movements. Uh, learning from the grassroots, uh, preserving the history of disenfranchised groups, creating avenues for participation in social and political change have always been the core parts of the mission of SE and ISS. In our Founders panel, we will begin with reflections from each of our panelists and then move to facilitating a dialogue in, with all of you uh, virtually and in the room. Uh, to begin with, I'd like to paraphrase uh, from one of uh, my friend Bob's uh, immortal memos, uh, <laughs> which, which attempt to describe who we are, what we did, and why we did it. Um, as the staff of Southern Exposure, uh, we don't represent one politically correct line. We are aimed to continually discuss and learn new ways to organize our lives, to support the movement for social justice, and understand the larger oppressive forces at work in the world and in the South. Broadly speaking, we were, and I think we are, anti-capitalist, anti-racist, populist-oriented in perspective, and united in our understanding that we don't involve the answers, but we agree on getting a story, getting to the truth, and building a, a way to stand up for civil rights and social justice. As Bob said, it is a dialectic in the sense that we foster a conversation between the arc of history and the present moment. We listen to the voices at the grassroots routinely. They are often ignored by the mainstream press and by those who write history. Our organizing and advocacy focus is on changing the lives and conditions of oppressed people and fighting the powers that are attempting to manipulate them and dominate them politically and economically. So to begin, we will hear from Sue Thrasher, Leah Wise, and Bob Paul. And I'll, ju I'll just sort of read the questions that we started with in our discussion about doing this panel, which is, um, how would you describe your personal and historical roots that um, Southern Exposure and the Institute for Southern Studies grew out of? How does starting the magazine relate to the larger institute goals for supporting the social movements, creating a sustainable organization, creating an outlet for investigative journalism, and exploring alternative culture and history. Could you describe a couple of examples of how each issue theme grew out of the social movement, of previously neglected stories, and other areas that were ripe for investigation? What contribution do you feel Southern Exposure has made to keeping alive ongoing social justice movements in the South, as well as investigative journalism, social action research, and grassroots storytelling? And lastly, how is the work and legacy of Southern Exposure in the Institute relevant to today's movements for social justice and keeping alive the telling of disfranchised people's history in the region? Uh, I just want to start by thanking Chip and Chris and all of the people who put this event together. It is really wonderful to be here and really wonderful to celebrate this anniversary. And clearly, a lot of work has gone into this event. So thank you very much. 
the first question uh, Chip asked us was about the roots, and I want to start as far back as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, and that's both a personal, uh, personal thing for me in terms of my own involvement, but it also uh, was very much a part of the early Institute for Southern Studies. Um, there were three people involved in conversations in the beginning about forming an institute. One was Julian Bond, who was at that time the communications director of SNCC, uh, Howard Romain, and myself. Um, the first meeting that I remember was actually on a porch on um, Raymond Street in Atlanta at one of the old SNCC offices, where we sat outside and talked about uh, the work that Jack Minnis was doing inside SNCC, which was uh, corporate research, uh, power structure research, um, and how we could, what the movement needed to sustain itself over a period of time, and what kind of information might be needed, and whether or not we could look at that and build something from that. Conversation, that was one of the early conversations, and those conversations continued for several years. Uh, that conversation must have taken place as early as 1966 or even earlier. Um, eventually, I went off to the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., which is another key, uh, key part of our history. Um, I was on my way to the New School for Social Research to go to graduate school. Uh, but I never went to the new school because I thought the Institute for Policy Studies was really the graduate school that I wanted to be at. Um, and about a year later, um, I was asked to become the administrative fellow at the Institute, and the deal I made with them is that we would be able to work on creating a Southern Institute um, over the next few years, and they would support that work, which they agreed to do. Uh, so over the over that period of time, Howard would occasionally come to DC. Julian would be in and out of DC, and we had ongoing conversations about creating a Southern Institute. Our goal, I think, when, to go back and think about why we did what we did. Um, you know, the easy, the quick answer to that is that we wanted to sustain the movement. We wanted to build the movement, to grow the movement, and to make sure that people had what they needed, the kind of information they needed to remain active. Now, between the early conversations in the 60s and by the time we started in 1970, the, the movement, the mass movement, had really shifted in many ways at that time and was much more, um, with more, not so much a mass movement, but more multiple movements, uh, organizations, people beginning to come out of activism in the Vietnam War, beginning to get involved in environmental issues, beginning to do look at corporations, much more uh, a, a broader movement as such, and, and uh, harder to identify as the kind of earlier mass movement, civil rights movement that we had really came out of and were talking about. So I think when we started the Institute for Southern Studies and began thinking about what we were going to do to grow this movement, we had to recognize that shift. And we were sort of um, making that road by walking it in terms of trying to respond to what was going on. And uh, eventually, uh, Southern Exposure 
came out of those conversations as a way to get out the, the work that we were doing. But if you look at the first three years, um, excuse me, the first three issues of Southern Exposure, they represent, what, two, three years of work at the Institute prior to that time. So uh, the, the work on the, the, the defense study, Howard Romaine had talked endlessly about the defense industry in the South and Richard Russell and how we had to document that. Um, the Georgia Power Project in Atlanta was key to the work we did in the second issue um, that came out. And then um, Leah and myself and Jacqueline Hall had started doing oral history work at this time. And I guess you asked to talk about a particular issue. So I'm going to talk specifically about neuromonin here. Um, Ann Brady was a, a mentor for me. Um, and she at one point had said to me, you really don't know your history. You, you really think that you're the, she said, you're really sort of arrogant. And not me, she was talking about all of us, but she certainly meant me as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're not here. All of us. She was talking about all of us. Uh, you really need to discover your own history, and you need to know about the people who were active in the 1930s and 40s, because people have done this before. You think you're the first, but you're not the first, so go find out your own history. Well, to find out that history, it was not written in the book, so you really had to go find new ways of doing it. And so conversations uh, with Jacqueline and Leah, and I don't know whether, I don't know whether you were involved, in, probably Bob was involved in those conversations as well, but we developed a, an oral history project. Um, the Institute uh, had very little money and the three of us have talked about this, especially over the last few weeks. How did we do what we did? And to tell you the truth, we don't know. We just scrounged around and did it uh, and got money, uh, little pieces of money here and there. But we did do a whole series of interviews on the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Leah went to Arkansas. Uh, I, I went to Arkansas on a trip to interview Fly East and J.R. Butler. Leah went back to Elaine, Arkansas. And, and found oh, people who had been involved in the Elaine massacres. Um, we began interviewing people who had been involved in the early labor movement. We did the interviews with the UAW sit-down strike people in Atlanta. And just, we began interviewing who we could and when we could uh, on a few things. And that eventually became the third uh, issue of Southern Exposure. It was the first uh, double issue because we had, I think I refused to take anything out. <laughs> but also it was because we were behind and we needed a double issue. To take out. And so it was both of those things. Mom insisted that we make it the rest of the year. Uh, so we did seven exposure based on that. The other thing I want to say is that um, part I think what was important about the founding of the Institute is our belief that we could create our own institutions and sustain them, and that, that, and that then we could manage them. We, we would have the freedom then to do the kind of work that we knew had to be done. And we didn't feel that we could do that in the organizations and the institutions that were already there. So her only real alternative was to create and try to make possible our own institutions. And I think back about that, and it's 
it's, um, I mean, talk about, if Anne Brady thought I was terrible about history, I mean, <laughs> creating an institution like that and think you can sustain it over time, that takes real something or other to do that. <laughs> um, and all of you in this room who work on Southern Exposure, and I'm sure those people who are staff people now know exactly how you did that. You did it through incredible long working hours. You did it through commitment, and you did it by scrounging, um, because that's the way you keep those institutions alive. Um, so that's that. That's the early part of what we did. Um, I think, in terms of southern exposure, there's just <coughs> Bob. Bob led us to southern exposure by saying we need to we need to find a way to get out our information here, and. Um, and it seemed like a very good idea at the time. But <laughs> the time I was sitting at midnight editing No More Mining, I thought, no, no, this wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> and how are we going to print the next issue? And what are we going to put in that? But uh, it was, we did need to find a way to get out the information. And uh, I think what's important about that is that we really were. It, it wasn't about putting out a journal. It was how do we make our work useful to people. It goes back to the question of what we were about. We were about how do we build a movement, and therefore we have to get this information out to people. We have to keep growing that movement, and the journal was one way of doing that. Now, I happen to think that one of the things that we um, a missed opportunity for us was not in doing some of the other things that we had talked about in terms of education, which was ongoing series of seminars. Uh, being, uh, we talked a lot about using your oral history work to develop alternative curriculum for public, public schools. Mm -hmm. Those were all great ideas that we did not have the money and the resources to really focus on. Uh, but Southern Exposure, we did make work and uh, that became uh, a major way of getting information out. And it's, uh, when you look back, when you look at the tables here of all of those issues, it really is an amazing legacy. I left early, uh, I left in 1978 to go to the Highlander Center. So for me to look at all of the things that, all of the work that has been done since then is just, it's an amazing uh, body of work uh, that's been, that has been sustained throughout this time. Just one more thing, there were three, um, I meant to say this earlier, there were three, three satellite institutes that came out of the Institute for Policy Studies. One was the Cambridge Institute and Cambridge Mass. It had, uh, it, uh, the people associated with that were Gar Alphabets, Christopher Jinks, Mary Jo Bang, they had their own publication. It was the Bay Area Institute and um, uh, San Francisco, California, with Chester Hartman and Barry Weisberg, uh, really focused on environmental justice. And then there was the Institute for Southern Studies. Now, the, the names I mentioned, the Cambridge Institute had all the Harvard <laughs> academic cred and a ton of money behind it. The Bay Area Institute had the academic cred and, and money behind it. Uh, the Institute for Southern Studies was, you know, two of us who had BA degrees, and mine was in religion of all <laughs> We didn't have, we did not have the credit and resources 
But we were where the other three, two institutes came to do a founding meeting of those three institutes. They came to Atlanta, and we were a part of that network, which I think was helpful in the early days in terms of being a part of something nationally that was going on. And, and certainly the Institute for Policy Studies, they gave us some money in the beginning and supported our work um, and were very important in what we did. But of those three institutes, the Institute for Southern Studies is the only one that lasts. We did not have the money, we did not have the resources, but we we sort of knew that we wanted to create an institution that we could sustain over time, and it's the only one still alive and well. Thanks. Kick it over to the Okay, this is lovely. Is this good enough? Okay. Uh, well, uh, hello, everybody. Good afternoon. I feel very grateful to be here and very thankful for all of you who put this together, but especially because so many of you in this room are so rooted in my heart for the work that we have done over the years. And so I'm really grateful to see you all. So I uh, came into the Institute in 1971. And I basically, first of all, uh, just to say a little bit about my background, is I uh, came out of the West Coast. I came out of a left-wing family that did both uh, union organizing and racial justice work. Uh, I came from a culture um, that really celebrated and saw and witnessed uh, workers being in leadership of those movements and the black workers being at the forefront of many of them. And so one of the things that I um, came to when I came south was an understanding of an excitement about the leadership and the work that people had done before our generation and with great respect. And I had met a number of people um, who had come through the town. One of them was a black communist named Pettis Perry. He was at the front of my sister's girlfriend's house. Um, who had all these stories from organizing in Alabama and riding the rails, and the mind just, woo! <laughs> um, and then um, I went to school in Wisconsin and worked at the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, which had both a social action collection and a civil rights collection was sent to Mississippi in 1967 to collect materials and remembrances of the movement, particularly uh, summer of 64. So that meant I went to all these different communities, but I also had to be involved in negotiations between the university, well, the State Historical Society, which was actually on the university campus, and SNCC. Um, and at the same time, I was affiliated with SNCC through a black student organization at Wisconsin. Um, and so the issue was whether or not the State Historical Society, me, um, could actually collect SNCC papers. And the agreement was because SNCC was very you know, anxious about government institutions, um, that I could go to Mississippi to collect uh, papers of COFO, which was the combined civil rights movement organization, and go to all these rural field offices, but to not uh, take SNCC papers, and if we found them, to bring them back to the office. So that was the first negotiation. There were other negotiations later. 
And then I uh, married the executive secretary to SNCC. And so I moved to Atlanta. And when I was there, I was on the first staff of the Martin Luther King Center for Social Change Library Documentation Project. And we did collection of movement work all across the South. So uh, all of us had long coattails that we brought to our work at the Institute. And mine was not only having relationships with SNCC folk, but actually contacts and relationships in grassroots communities all across the South from this work. So um, the other thing, I guess, is that to say that we were all politically active in um, Atlanta. So this was just a piece of our work and a way to kind of, as Stu was talking about, get some of it out. But we also had other endeavors. And so um, one of the things that actually the Georgia ACLU was right there in our offices. And so I was on their police committee. So anyway, um, but I want to talk a little bit about the context because in Atlanta at the time, uh, this was a time where black power and black consciousness was really flowering. And the way in which black power was being um, interpreted was to build black institutions. And so this institution building effort was in terms of education, uh, in terms of cultural arts. So there were a lot of community-based um, groups in Atlanta doing this. Even my daughter went to a, a daycare center that very much was about teaching black history and black consciousness and awareness. So that was kind of that environment. And uh, there was this effort at recovering black land and uh, different uh, political campaigns beginning to emerge for mayor and stuff. And then SNCC was also, the work was moving into internationalism and particularly supportive African liberation movements. So these are kind of the dynamics, but at the same time, there's all this COINTELPRO repression happening. And that I felt like I lived through because we had the family had the responsibility really of dismantling the organization. And at the same time, uh, there was a jailing of SNCC draft dodgers, three uh, who went to jail right at this time. And then uh, Che Payne and Ralph Featherstone were blown up. I mean, it was a heavy duty um, uh, situation. And I was also a part of the black uh, draft resistance movement, which grew out of my, one of the main works that I personally did with SNCC was in terms of anti-war work. And so even at the time when I was in Atlanta, I was a part of the National Black Draft Resistance League and I was actually um, counseling people. Um, so this other aspect I want to say about the times is just what was the character of history? And in the black community, the work around what we call then Negro history was primarily predominantly about how do we write about how we are worthy people and worthy to be included in the, the mass dominant society? Not what uh, is the story of resistance and uh, dealing with the uh, capitalist society that has dehumanized and, uh, and we don't need to go all the way. But the point is that, and then there were some, you know, some beginnings of things. Um, that were, were surfacing, like her acting, her writing about slave resistance and stuff. But the, and I think actually, um, Vincent Harding has an uh, article in the No More Morning 
It's just about this idea is about where was history going. So in part, what I saw and, and was very grounded in really was how getting at uh, including the voices of um, people, black people, white people in the South, in, the, in resistance, um, trying to make a way, trying to affirm life. Those stories were required for history to be true. And I really thought everybody else, that's the thing, this white folk, this will lie. And I think that's actually at the bottom of conflict today, that people don't understand the history of this country. So in ways, this was a very uh, you know, missionary work in a way. And then the other side of it, um, looking at Najami coming out of New York, the Pan-Africanists of the Cultural Nationalist group didn't even, they denied that black people had a history in the U.S. and looked to the origins and influence of um, you know, African culture and even to the point of some folks deciding that it was important to be polygamous. I mean, that was you know, traditional history. That was not the whole dominant trend. I'm saying it is a trend. So then the sense of our trying to do a history that was grounded in the people, um, not just the professionals and the, you know, that kind of leader was really what um, I was interested in and brought to the Institute. Um, the other side to it, the other dynamic I say was that it was uh, liberation theology and Howard Thurman's influence and this being another uh, dynamic that was going on. So at the time also the sort of splits in the movement, some of which were reaction to black power, this sectarianism began to surface at that time, but it was nowhere near like it was at the end of the 70s. So, um, at any rate, so what I'm going to say that I personally um, was inspired by Ella Baker, who I had many conversations with when I was at the King Center, about all the work that she had done in the 40s and 30s. And nobody in SNCC knew it. I mean, she was very central to our work. Nobody bothered to ask her, what did she do? Because we had this, or SNCC had this, but I have to say I didn't identify with this position, but that people over 30 were irrelevant. <laughs> um, so, but she had, she had um, so I have a lot of those stories um, behind me. And I, I felt like, um, the importance of not only capturing that, but the importance of really uh, surfacing and um, celebrating working class perspectives was essential to correcting the, um, the historical record, I would think. And also that the people, even for, and this is what I was gonna say that in terms of doing oral history interviews, you have to recognize your influence on the people that you're interviewing as well. And because a lot of folks didn't even recognize the significance of what they had done. And they felt so proud, and they feel so proud when it is acknowledged. Um, and so that was what made this work really exciting and dynamic. And um, also people, I thought, should understand workers as being intellectuals too. And, and definitely the legacy of slavery, in my view, put a damper on the South. Workers are to be shunned, 
they are lowly, they are unworthy. Um, and even that language of red, redneck stuff, the same thing about poor white workers. So to me, this was part of why what we were doing was really a revolutionary enterprise, because we were trying to write the record. So um, I do want to say, how many times? One minute over? Oh, I have three more? Okay. Um, I do want to say that it was a challenge coming out of black politics at background that um, coming to the Institute and working in an interracial environment, you know, I was not above criticism for that. Um, but I want to say, like, when, like, the institution building, the Institute um, of the Black World, which was the second arm of the Martin Luther King Center and the Library Documentation Project, were very much about conscious about cre creating Black institutions and are controlling our own history. But, their work did not turn the lens to working class people. And so to me, what was important about being in this environment with the Institute was that we all agreed about what were we after and why was it important to be done. And so um, I think that actually looking back at the very first issue of the military in the South, I was like, surprised, damn, how did we pull this off? First two articles are about Black anti-war movement and the perspectives of that movement. And nobody talked about the anti-war movements being anchored in the black community generally. So I was I felt like, yeah, that was why I was with these folks. <laughs> so anyway, so what I want to speak to though is that I feel like the organizational culture and style of work that we were engaged in very much mirrored the methodology and principles of oral history. And so we were like Everything was uh, about conscious collaboration, complex shared shared leadership. Um, we were, you know, we were like peers. We recognized the coattails that we brought to the table. We had respect for each other's work. There wasn't a hierarchy, which was probably the work at least most of us have come out of <laughs> that, that kind of experience. Um, and. The idea that we all had different talents and skills, but we could pull them all together, and not just pull them all together on the staff, but all of our friends we roped in to please help do this, please help do that. We're trying to elevate voices. So the kind of turfism and the silo stuff that emerged later, this was not a dynamic that we were um, engaged in. In fact, we're very conscious about trying to not, not do that. So, um, I guess I would say the other thing around, uh, like in the vision of labor, um, you know, we all did everything. Fundraising, emptying trash cans, taking notes, transcribing. Um, but me, I always got brought to frack. I mean, Bob was the chart person, but I was the one who could sit down and draw the lines. <laughs> so, you know, and you have to remember the technology. We didn't have computers. You know, we, we were, uh, we barely had a selector typewriter. We were cut and pasting things. I remember the article I wrote about China, somehow a whole paragraph got on the floor and never made it in the article. <laughs> you know, things like that. But um, anyway, uh, I think that the, um, I don't know if this is the time that we were going to do this or talk about this later, but I want to just say that these, this style of work so much shaped what I've done from here on. And that, and trying to bring people together, have respectful relationships, 
um, you know, learn from each other, have a greater sense of what we're doing. Uh, that and and every aspect of work, I guess I can think of, has always had an oral history aspect to it. So how do we give credence to what we're doing? You go to the source. And so I, I want to just kind of close with that, but just to say that for all the work, organizing work that I've done since that time, I always was engaged with all these people sitting here. <laughs> we always got roped into one thing or another, but that's what those relationships meant. They were significant, they were real, um, and it, it wasn't that we were above struggle, because we certainly had that and sometimes difference of opinion, but we had that kind of respect and sense of honesty and truth to the work. So next to last and least to most. So direct your attention to the right side of the stage, to that big chart there. I want you all to come up and look at the, uh, the big spider web. Look at the blue boxes and the green box, the circle, because that was really what we were doing. This, this is the Institute of Southern Exposure is a web of interrelationships that we relied on totally, and you all were a part of that, and we tried to actually help grow all those movements. As Sue said, at the time the Southern Exposure came, uh, the movement was fragmenting, but it was also blossoming in just a thousand flowers. Uh, so trying to help nurture that and keep track of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start go back. You know, I, I joined the Institute as a volunteer, um, as I think a lot of folks in, in the story that I've heard started as a, an intern or a volunteer. I started as a volunteer when Jackie and I moved to, back to the South from New York in 1970, September. The Institute had started in March, and I started hanging around. Um, I didn't have any money, but you know, we just had a lot of conversations and all. I, I had come out of, uh, like Sue, grew up in the church, Southern church, uh, single mom, raising her four kids as a church secretary. Uh, work ethic was totally into me. I started earning money when I was eight, and I never stopped, you know. I mean, I, people know me as a workaholic. I am a workaholic. Sorry. <laughs> That's my work balance, my life balance. Um, still, 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 yes. My current wife, Jack, uh, Jennifer, knows it well. Um, so, um, but, you know, I, I went to college in Memphis, met Howard there. Howard pulled uh, Jackie and I into demonstrating against uh, segregated churches and trying to integrate them with the youth chapter of the NAACP, 1964. Um, Howard was two years ahead of me, and that also pulled me into SOC. Um, and then I went off to New York, uh, graduate school, uh, re reconnected with Jackie up there. Um, and got involved in, I was at Columbia, at the Columbia bus, the takeover of buildings, uh, influenced by the NACLA investigation of, of Columbia, got, got involved in a mobile resource team for the next couple of years, dropped out of Columbia, got involved in, in organizing, uh, anti-racist organizing in crisis situations. 
1968. This is right after the King assassination, right after the sanitation strike in Memphis. And the analysis of the church sponsored was that if there had been a, a, a segment of the white community in Memphis that had spoken up in favor of the sanitation workers, maybe that strike wouldn't have lasted so long. Maybe there wouldn't have been as much violence, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea was to have a, and as young punks, you know, the young people uh, go into com communities in a crisis type of situation. So then we, we had St. Petersburg, which was a sanitation store, Wilmington, Delaware, and Lexington, Kentucky, you know, different places. And then I wound up back in New York working with uh, kind of the investigation of the church itself and uh, their investments, the corporate power structure of the church. Of the church. This is at the time the Dow Chemical trying to get the churches to not invest in Dow and uh, disinvestment in, in uh, South Africa. Uh, so the power structure stuff was, was big. So when I came to the Institute, those are the kind of things I brought was the power structure analysis uh, and also this interest in, in organizing very much. Um, and started right away, that even as a volunteer, trying to dissect the power structure of Atlanta. And of course, the big power was Coca-Cola based in Atlanta. That's the big, big dog. Uh, and the Minute Maid, uh, which Coke had bought, um, there was a United Farm Workers thing. Anyway, one thing after another, and we did it in, in 72, um, out, of, out of our many meetings, uh, we identified the uh, George Power Company. At the time, they were trying to break the unions. Uh, they had a record of horrendous job discrimination, and they were in trying to get a rate increase from the, from the utility commission. Uh, we said, holy shit, this is, uh, and they're, you know, uh, a public, <laughs> public <laughs> monopoly, but they were regulated. So how can they serve the public if they're doing all this stuff? So we organized uh, the Georgia Power Project. And um, in that, that kind of pattern, and, and then, you know, pushing us all to, to be more disciplined about our work and how we're going to get it out. You, there was an integration of these act, these organizing efforts with the publication of the, of the journal, always to me. We, none of us were journalists, right? We were all activists. Um, so we, we were struggling how to do that uh, and keep everything going. But it was relied upon, you know, these big, our friends, the networks, and part of the purpose of Southern Exposure when you look at those old memos was about connecting to a broader, to the broader movement, bringing, how do we relate, how do we contribute? Um, and I think over, that was, that was what we were doing. And at the same time, incubating more organizing projects, um, developing more organizing projects. Shout out to, to, to Jackie. She was the one who came up with the title Southern Exposure. It comes from a book from, by Stetson Kennedy, but it's called Southern Exposure, an expose of, of the South in, in written in the 40s. Um, and, you know, on and on. So I, I, I want to hear actually from some of you all about some of the issues. If we're, if we're going to talk about how issues develop, there are a number of editors out here. Uh, I, I want to also say that the so it, it's a big thing to me that we were pioneering oral history and pioneering corporate research, yes. investigative research, at the same time. 
this one little institute in the South pioneering both of these things in, in, a, in this environment. That, that's is pretty bizarre. But that's what happened. And we, the, another thing that was influenced by us was from, from the bird, our, the, the graphic designer was Stephanie Coffin. Uh, and she infused in the magazine this ratio of graphics to text uh, and trying to, you know, make it recognize that a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, and so the graphics was a very important throughout. Uh, and I see Alan Troxler down here was one of the designers. We had some dynamite designers of the magazine um, through the time. So shout out really to the, to the designers and special editors. I don't know if we're going to give any but I know there's, you know, Peter Wood, special editor, Tom Oaken, special editor, Jim Oaken, Grant Andrews, special editor. I mean, just on it. Jim, Jim did I say Jim in? Jim Session. What did I say? Yeah, I think it's in it. Yeah, the religion issue. And everybody can stand up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who was involved? Stand up, please. If you are involved in a special issue as an editor, I know. Even people came back. Who is a, a board member of the institute? Board member of the institute. Any of you all that served on the board? <laughs> Fragile institution. It <laughs> <laughs> almost shut down more than once. One of the things I do want to say, I forgot to say, but we had a particular character as a staff, and that was we were quite audacious. Oh, yes. And one story I have, I was telling Bob that I, this sticks in my memory. We were up at the New World Field, no. Field Foundation. Let's Gunbar uh, was the director, and Bob and I are talking to them about, you know, can we get a, a shot with, I don't even remember what, what a general institute or a particular issue, but, you know, the reception was kind of cold, and I'm thinking, well, and Bob says, can't you just kick us $5,000 we haven't told them to Sure enough, in a couple of weeks, there was $5,000. <laughs> so I learned from that, yeah, we're worthy, and they need to partner with us in order to realize their mission. So. There also one of the amazing proposals that was a total failure for the National Endowment for the Humanities, which was for the project. Right. Our it's so much. Doing this when Nixon was president. I mean, <laughs> there was some insanity in us, too. <laughs> No, we really wanted to be able to have a conversation with you all. And so if people would like to make comments or ask questions of the group, um, we'd be happy to do that. Anybody who'd like to jump in, stand up, raise your hand. Peter, I'll just follow on the audacity comment. But Ben on the other end of the stick. I was a foundation officer in New York. And it was weird. I mean, I was under 30 and I would and didn't know much and I would have these university presidents come in and suck up to me. Because <laughs> they would say, I'd say, well, what are you interested in? He said, 
what are you interested yeah, right. in? <laughs> and they had their little grocery list and anything. Oh, yeah, we do that too. You know, we need $200,000. And then I started meeting. First, I met Karis Horton with Miles Horton's daughter. And she went back and told them there's this guy at the foundation who seems to be interested. And the reason I was interested was because these people were audacious. And they were just saying, well, this is what we do. You know, and one of the, Mike Clark came in from Highland Review. I said, tell me what you do. He said, uh, you're not going to be interested in what we do, but this is what we do. It wasn't give me money. You know, it was, you know, if you're in, and, and he said, well, come on down, we'll show you around. You know, and that was, and, and coming to the Triangle, coming to Highlander, those places. I mean, in a world that was so vacuous and so corrupt and so isolated, this was a fresh breath of fresh air. Yeah. And it changed my life. <laughs> It'd be nice to hear from some of the people who did special issues. Yeah. I'm Fran Ansby, and I told this story in the Labor Roundtable, but it means a lot to me, and I think it's relevant. Um, I, I think that I, Brenda Bell and I came to work on the No More Moaning issue because of you, Sue, I think. I mean, yeah. it's all vague yeah. in the mists of time, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> we came over and had a, had a meeting with you and Leah, it was all very exciting and we were trying to understand what are you asking us to do. But I think you figured we were strategically located near Highlander in East Tennessee. We've been in Knoxville now for a long time. And the thing that Highlander could bring that y'all were just ready to go with, you just handed us these, and Highlander handed us these amazing gifts, which was Jim Dombrowski's personal notes from his interviews with coal miners who had been helping to set the convict free during the convict relief fight, you know, back in the 1890s. And so here we were in the 1970s holding these notes from the interviews of the people in the 1890s and thinking, now we get to go interview some people who are still there um, in Lake City, now it's now called it. Anyway, um, and at the same time, Miles Horton gave us the gift of his memories of being on the Cumberland Plateau in the great Davidson Wilder strike, which I already knew a little bit about from Hedy West's record of all of his incidents, you know. Um, so uh, you were really instigating people, instigating people who were pretty young then to go out and find out about stuff and that you could provide a place for them to finish the job and help them. Thank you. 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 And going back and teaching them. Oh, that's certainly a good uh, description of Highlander, but it's also a good description of the early of the Institute for Southern Studies and Southern Exposures, is getting information and trying to find a way to teach it. Anybody else? Um, yeah, please. Earl. 
to those designers who recognize a picture was worth a thousand words, I give great praise to because the venue of Southern Exposure offered picture makers like me an opportunity to pair our images that represented individual people and their stories in a way that uh, there was a synergy and the combination gave great power to the message of Southern Exposure. And um, I was always grateful for those associations and, and ability to just <laughs> add my part. Filtration about you know people, FBI, whatever, uh, other versions of it locally, uh, infiltrating, you know, trying to screw things up. Fine, you, you have to you have to deal with that internally at all. 
I'm just curious whether that was a presence coming out of the traditions that you were comfortable with do that. Oh, well, I don't remember that being a part of conversations with us at the Institute, but in the community in Atlanta at the time, it was very real, and especially with the SNCC organization and the work going on. And so there was a lot of, um, I mean, some of the police officers, for example, who trailed SNCC people, folks knew them, you know, they were aware of that, but there were others where more of the Asian provocateurs had, were surfacing. So that was a part of the growing black movement at the time, that the, that was happening, it was conscious, and, and especially as the work became more international, that was also more present, I would say. It was, even, it was also even in the George Power um, project awareness of, of Asian provocateurs. Uh, and infiltrators trying to make you do more outrageous stuff than you wanted to do because they wanted to then have an excuse. Um, so you had to be very careful about what the tactics were. And the bird uh, offices, you know, where fire was burned, um, probably 71 or something. I mean, this is, there was a lot of awareness that had the COINTELPRO and, you know, it was, it was um, there was some paranoia. And needless to say, I'm always aware of my phone. <laughs> we don't say stuff on the phone uh, unless you, um, I'm, you know, it's still awareness of that. It goes on continually. No, it's so funny that even when we were having our discussions about having this event, we didn't really want to make it that public, you know, because they planned that for But no, but there's still, there's still a concern. I, we're living in the middle of a war. About history, right here, this campus. Yeah, I want to say a couple of things about the Southern Black Veterans Today um, Journal, which I co-edited with Tony K. Bombardo. And uh, the reason that we did now this is kind of thought about this because as the role that Southern Exposure played of communicating the South to the rest of the nation, and in this case. This was a conscious effort to bring Southern Black writing into the Black Writers Movement nationally, which in all the volumes that had, you know, were present, nothing was there from the South. So that was the intention behind that. And I just want to say that from uh, leaving the Institute, that the, the experience of being exposed to so much of what the South is, was that it became part of the articulation of our work. And I remember when Bill Troy and Doug Gamble from Tennessee and I were a part of the, uh, this grassroots organization around plant closings in New York. And we were exposed to all these, this organizing happening everywhere. And we're like, are we just bad organizers? Why is it that we, we're so far behind in everything? And it just made us begin to articulate more the really structural relations of the South. But it became something that this was the groundwork for that. And um, so I think that was one thing that was a, this has been a major contribution. The second thing I just have to say, um, which is around the Southern Tenant Farmers Union work, is that when we were doing all these interviews with uh, H.L. Mitchell in our office uh, in Atlanta, the story of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union looked a lot like what Donald Brooks' book was which were, here are these white socialists in Arkansas, and they're working with these 
uh, black tenant farmers and they're communicating to money people in New York and that was the work of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. But when I went from community to community across Arkansas, from central Arkansas to east Arkansas, I learned this organization was practically 95% black. And these were grassroots organizations on the ground. Some of them were, were interracial uh, uh, chapters, and most of them weren't. A lot of women leadership, the black leadership in the organization, especially vice president, was intentionally black because they felt that they were actually the chair. They would get nothing but absolute slap down. So just to say the truth of what the work was, and then to learn that the, what the people involved in the Southern Tenant Farmers Union were also the same people who hosted SNCC people who came down, or other students who came down in the evening. So this was a sense of the, the movement and how you, you know, work built on the shoulders of others was very much present in that um, work. But you know, had we not gone and talked to everybody, we would not have had a clue of that. So that's why I think our history is a revolutionary enterprise. Six or seven of us trying to piece together things on little pieces of paper. We had no technology. And then in a new generation, a real journalist and an editor came along <laughs> to keep the magazine afloat. I was uh, here from 87 to 95. I think to what you're saying, some of the you know, one of the changes at that time was technological. It's the first time we started producing the magazine on a computer. Uh, my last, my first issue was with Peter Wood, and I remember going to the airport and realizing that a piece of the cover had fallen off. And I had to race back and get find the piece in the office and put it through the hot waxer and put it back on. But after that issue, we started being produced on a, on a computer. So that was a that was a big change. But I also think that there was a period when the the Institute and the left in general was thinking about this question of uh, audience and how do we get our audience, uh, our message out to a wider audience. The left was very comfortable sort of preaching to the choir. And I think um, the Institute had always had sort of these three legs of academics, activists, and journalists, but tilting much more heavily towards the activists and the academics. And I think we began to kind of experiment with how can we package our uh, stories in a different way. How can we do the same work and have it have the same integrity and authenticity, but how do we get it out to people who might not otherwise see it? So I think that was a new, relatively new kind of concern and element and produced all sorts of tensions because uh, the translating function is different than a, than a speaking to your, your own selves function. And so that forced us to think about it, what we were doing in all kinds of different ways, but we still tried to make sure those three uh, legs of the tripod were there. So when we did something like uh, the poultry issue, which was mentioned earlier, every issue we did uh, had an investigative journalism aspect where we tried to look at the power structures. It had an oral history aspect where we tried to hear directly and in an untranslated, unfiltered way from the people whose real experience was driving our work and tried to have a historical lens through which we understood how we had gotten to this place and the models uh, that had come before. And so I, I always felt like integrating those three elements was the, the, the through line of all the Institute's history. 
and it was done in different ways and different measures at different moments. Uh, but that was what made the Institute uh, explore and some of the exposures work so unique is that it drew on those three different strands of activism. Okay, so are there any questions from the um, Zoom audience? There not. Okay, we're good. Well, okay. any other comments from audience? Final words. A question. Oh, good. You talked about the Atlanta. How did you get here? <laughs> so in, in uh, yeah. So in uh, summer, Jackie got a job uh, <laughs> as the director of the to get a job. <laughs> Honest work intervened. Uh, yeah, got, a, uh, got the job at um, UNC Oral History Program. At, you know, to come and start it in the summer of, of '73. So the magazine we just done one and a half issues. The, the July, you know, the two issues. Um, so and the business we didn't talk about the business of making the damn thing work. But it's a small business, and that was a lot of work. Um, and a lot of people in here can talk about it. But that, so the business operation moved with me to, with, and Jackie to our house. And for the next couple of years, um, the business operation, much of the magazine, ran out of our house. And I would go back to Atlanta, because uh, Stephanie was still there doing layout and stuff. And we were using free, the, the, some of the technology at Emory University, we then came here and started using free technology at Duke. Shh, those kids didn't pay for it. It was free, you know, they didn't pay for it. So, yeah, I just want to say, as like the next cohort, I guess, of, of people, you know, uh, excited about this work. I uh, well, I started college in 1977 and then grad school in 1982. And there were two journals, popular journals like this, that were just crucial to my formation. You know, my thinking and activism and radical America and Southern exposure. Um, and when I was starting graduate school um, in the 80s, it was just amazing to come across that journal. Like what was lighting up history was the new study of slavery and the new studies of the South and work by Jacqueline and other, uh, you know, so many other folks. About, about Southern history, but I just loved Southern exposure. Um, and it was just so rich and so, in today's words, intersectional um, in such an amazing way. But I also want to say, too, um, I really appreciate the visuals of, you know, that people have talked about, but the visuals of the magazine and the incredible photography and graphics and cartoons. But I remember there was a, a picture, and I don't know who took it, I don't think it was Earl Goddard, but there was a, a, just a, a, a picture in one of the issues that had a, a father and daughter and you know the father really looked like he had a hard life and he he kind of had you know cut off sleeves and he, but he was holding this girl with such tenderness um that it just it moved me deeply that it just and he was white had kind of real cream back hair. anyway it was just so beautiful that uh, that and among many other uh photos i made copies of and turned into office art but anyway when i was in northwestern some, one young woman said oh is that your father <laughs> <laughs> this is her photo, you know, and what you see in it. Um, so I just wanted to share that, but I also wanted to pick up on 
uh, something that a few of you made reference to, Leah, uh, you in particular, about what happened in the later years and kind of the fracture and the sectarianism. And I just wonder, like now looking back on those years, how you would explain it. I mean, on the one hand, there was this kind of left developing that could get very sectarian. On the other hand, the movements were, as you said, like multiplying and exploding in all these exciting directions. But I also wonder if on reflection, um, there foundations contributed to some of the fracture, you know, in this situation that we see now where foundations often have groups who should be working together, competing for funding and therefore trying to distinguish themselves from one another. And I don't think that was the case for the Institute for Southern Studies, but I wonder if in kind of the movement world that you were connected to, some of that fracture had to do with that, you know, that need to compete for, for support. Well, I'm certain how many times that was your That's a big question, but I'll, I'll answer on two fronts that I, I've experienced. First of all, I think the role of foundations and its influence on fracturing the movement was that it basically put the movement in silos, and people had become experts in a very narrow piece of work. And that got funded, and people competed for funding within that slice. Um, so there was a lot of tokism that surfaced. Uh, and so I think that's what was full blown. In the black movement and civil rights, I guess, work, I would say, um, there was a lot of influence of the Marxist-Leninist work that was mainly in New York, and we call the alphabet soup stuff, but folks were, you know, especially in the African liberation movement, because they were aligned with different um, countries, China, Russia, you know, there were different politics that caused that kind of stream to happen. What broke us out of it was the murders in Greensboro. And the, I was what brought me back actually into working, organizing, was um, built, having that demonstration that uh, took a major issue. Jim Lee uh, is here was very instrumental in helping get that off the ground. But it, at that time, finally, all these folks who had been battling each other uh, to the point of, and, well, I don't need to go to the point of, but, but the point is that here was this greater enemy in our midst, and it was the first time that people came together to pull off that demonstration. We had a planning meeting in Atlanta. It was a conference of kind of, there were 400 people there, and about 30 of us ended up sitting on the floor for all night long to bring together this, with the one end, CWT, the other end, SCLC, of we're marching with guns and no, we're, this is a you know peace movement. So it took, I mean, it was very intentional to bring people back together, but that pivot, it was a pivotal moment. And so then there were different opportunities. Um, my work was about, in creating networks was actually to provide the arenas for people to come in and work together. But there were other opportunities as well. Yeah, we're, uh, I mean, we hate to end any conversation, but we need to leave the stage. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening.